good to see me too. That's awesome. Ready to go? Feeling good? Hey, on your phones, all you guys, a lot of you guys have phones. You know that you have the, how many of you have ever used the panorama view thing, panoramic thing? Oh, don't tell me I'm the only one, right? There's a couple of us, right? You know, that's the one that you, you take when you're just like trying to take a picture. Right there, and you look and you realize you didn't get any of it, so you do it again, right? You try to go, and then finally you get it on your phone. Have you ever done that? And you're like, man, I got this panoramic view of like the Grand Canyon, and you look at it and you're like, hmm, hmm, hmm. You're like, I can't even really see it. And then you think to yourself, I know what I'll do. I'll take it home and I'll put it on my TV or whatever you got, your computer screen. And I actually had a panoramic view of the uh, Olive Garden in Israel, and I was going to like show you. I was going to put it on the big screen, but it looks stupid. <laughs> it's easy to go online and see it. But here's the ironic thing. A lot of us take these panoramic views because there's so much great stuff that you want to all get into one shot. You know what I'm talking about, right? The, the idea. There's so many great elements and details that you want to put into one shot, but it's just too difficult because it's hard to get all that information in one shot. A lot of times, studying the book of Revelation is a lot like looking at a panoramic view on your phone. There's just a lot of information to try to get into one shot. There's just a lot of things to try to cram into a moment to, to, to try to understand. The, the book of Revelation was intended to be understood for sure. But the problem with the book of Revelation is that there's, there's so many things that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around to try to figure out what it's alluding to. A lot of us don't know our Old Testament well enough to know what it's referring back to and how in the world Daniel was there and what this is about Ezekiel and how, how does this fit and all of that, right? You bump into the two witnesses that are alive and then they're dead for three and a half days and they come back to life. And then there's 42 months of this tribulation-y thing. And then there's another 42 months, which equals seven years, but it's in three and a half year increments. And then there's this crazy moment where there's 144,000 people that show up to this place. And then there's this woman riding on a 10-headed dragon coming in where there's a little horn and a big horn and seven bowls of judgment. Amen. Let's go home. It's hard, man. There's just so many things that you look at the book of Revelation and you're like, it feels like you're taking a drink off of a big fire hose. Come on, right? So how on earth can we take a few weeks and be able to really understand that? So there's a couple ways you can deal with it. One is to go through all of those details. And I'll tell you this, this, that is a way and it's a really good way. And if you have time, do the effort because every detail of your Bible is written on purpose. Every little nuance of when you find out who that woman was writing on that 10-headed dragon or what the seven the seven candlesticks are, and somebody asked me last service, the, the chapter one of Revelation talks about the seven spirits of God. And they're like, time out. What do you mean seven spirits of God? <laughs> you have to ask yourself those questions, right? And then you begin to understand that the seven spirits of God is this understand that literally it's, it's the number seven, first of all, and the number seven is the word of completeness. And really what he was talking about was the full, complete understanding of this, uh, of who God is, God and his peace and his mercy. And we could break up his, his, his personhood of his spirit if we wanted to. But the truth is really what the Bible is saying in the book of Revelation, there's so many pictures and signs and it would really probably get us caught in the big, thick weeds if we spent all of that. So how do we understand the book of Revelation? Super glad you asked. 
Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take a few minutes today and in next week to begin to understand just the really big pieces, the really big parts of Revelation to help us get a get kind of an understanding. Because I think this, this, this message of the book of Revelation, can I tell you what it really is? If you boil Revelation down to, to really what its most common, its most common message is, here's what it is. I love you so much that I will shake heaven and earth so that you'll finally realize who I am. Amen. The book of Revelation is a big, fat love letter in the midst of all of these crazy, four-headed, six-winged, eyeballs everywhere, coming up from the abyss, millennial kingdom reign information. I have been studying probably too much. <laughs> Going a little buggy. My wife's like, enough talk of Revelation around the house. <laughs> I don't know what you talk about at home. But when I'm talking shop, my wife's like, you're creeping me out. <laughs> there's, there's lots of stuff in the book of Revelation that we could understand. I'd like to take today and slow the train down. But really what I'd like to do is to take this week and next week, giving you a little bit of an understanding of the background of Revelation. And next week I'm going to do what most pastors don't do. <laughs> I'm going to do... I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to give you what I'm going to call an end time timeline. Next week, I come back, bring your friends, bring your friends as friends, do something. But next week, I'm going to do my best to lay out for you what I believe this end time timeline looks like. When is this rapture? When is this judgment seat of Christ? Is it different from the white throne judgment of Christ? Is it different? Is there a, is there a once, uh, two comings of Jesus, a second coming, and then the rapture? What of all those things? How many of you ever wondered all that stuff, right? How many of you are wishing that you were me next week? <laughs> all my pastor friends are like, you're dumb. You know honestly why I feel so compelled to do this? Because I feel like one day when I stand before God, he's going to say, Lance, why didn't you tell him? So I'm going to tell you. You may disagree with me. In fact, I know you're going to disagree with me. It makes me happy when someone disagree with me, disagrees with me because it makes me feel like they're studying their Bibles. But I'll tell you this. If you disagree with me because you heard some guy talk online or you, you heard somebody say something and that's your standard of why you believe what you believe, don't waste your time. <laughs> If you disagree with me because you've studied and you've sought out and you've prayed and you've talked to people who talk to people who read their Bibles more than you do, let me know that. I'll listen to you all day long. Come on. But you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes people will just come up and say, no, 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 that's just not how I feel. That's not what I learned when I was little. That's not what my whatever said to you, and therefore you hang on to that. And I'll just tell you this. I, I don't know. Here's one thing I can tell you. I know that there are really, really smart people on the planet who have shed their blood on the hillside for these truths. Whether it was this or that. <laughs> I remember one time sitting down in an office with, uh, some of you have spiritual rock stars in your life. I mean, people that you really look up to. And, and so there's the guy in my life. His name is Pastor Jeff. He was a, he's a spiritual rock star for me. The, the guy, he, he's the best Bible teacher I know. I've had him preach here. I love this guy. He, he's amazing to me. And, and so I remember sitting in his office one day. I was talking to him about eschatology. It's really a fancy way of saying the end time narrative, the unfolding of the end times. I sat down with Pastor Jeff and, I, you know, it was back in the day. So I had my yellow pad and my pen out, you know, not the iPad. And I remember sitting down with him and I said, okay, Pastor Jeff, give me your... So your, your understanding of eschatology, give me your end time 
understanding. What is your thought on it? And so I sat down in his office and he goes, you know, Lance, there are, there are lots of views. There's the, the pre-tribulation rapture idea, the mid-tribulation rapture idea, the post-tribulation. There's amillennialism. There's post-millennialism. There's this thousand-year reign that could be here, there, anywhere. There could be all kinds of stuff. So you ready? I was like, are you kidding me? I'm more than ready. What do you got? He goes, there's lots of views, Lance. Pick one. You might be right. <laughs> Amen. Probably the smartest thing you could have said to a young 20-year-old who was just trying to figure it all out. In other words, come on, who's kidding who? There's some really, really smart people that have shot each other over these disagreements. So as long as we can agree to disagree or agree to agree, I can tell you that God told me at least to share with you because as the preacher of the word of God, if I believe that all of it's God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, then I better talk about all of it. Amen? So that's what I'm going to do. You just may not like it. And I'm okay with that. I can honestly say it wouldn't be the first time. Let me tell you why pastors, there's a couple of reasons I wrote down. Sometimes pastors avoid preaching on the book of Revelation. Here's a couple of reasons why. First of all, it's hard work. There's just a lot of stuff that comes into play when you're studying this. Number two, because oftentimes pastors don't fully understand it themselves. It's just hard to be able to wrap your mind around it. Number three, they're fearful that people are going to leave the church with a disagreement or an understanding that they have. Number four, they believe that people will stop tithing. Actually, pastors, there are pastors who actually believe that if, if we teach on the book of Revelation, that people are going to stop giving financially. I don't think so. I think, honestly, the opposite. I think when people get an understanding of this thing being for real, that they realize that their stuff is just stuff, and they can trust God with it. But I think the most important part, or the, most, uh, the, the biggest reason that pastors don't talk about Revelation, honestly, is this, because people get sidetracked. Uh, I, I was in college in 1985, and I remember in 1985, I could have conversations with anybody at any point in my college group of people that would talk about, I mean, it was like we were talking about the end times like it was then. In fact, there was a book written around that time frame called 88 Reasons the Lord is Going to Return in 1988. Mm-hmm. Yep. Didn't happen. So then he wrote a sequel to it, 89 Reasons the Lord's Going to Return in 1989. No joke. Crazy. But it didn't take but a second. I could have, any of my Christian friends back there in college, I could have just said, you know what, let's just talk about, I could throw out some, the tribulation or uh, the rapture or you name it. I could say anything about an end time moment and I could get someone to stay up till three in the morning just, I mean, like foaming at the mouth, mad or happy or whatever, because it didn't take long because we were talking about it 33 years ago. Can I level with you? I, I will tell you something you didn't know. We are closer, we were closer now, we are closer today than we were then. That's deep. Get this, you're even closer to the end times than the first service. That's good. The problem with people is that we get so sidetracked. We start getting weird. Jesus gave us one big rule. He said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be with you, I promise you, till the end of the age. Jesus gave us one command, really two commands, love him and love people. Love him and make disciples. Anything else just gets in the way. It's important that you understand the end time narrative just so that you're informed. The problem is, is that we do more than get informed. And we find, we find ourselves going down these wormholes of information. 
The reason why pastors don't talk about it oftentimes is because people in church world start going down a wormhole of trying to realize, like, i got to watch all the news clips and all the crazy things going on, and where's the, oh my gosh, that's the Antichrist, and that's the mark of the beast. No, this is the mark of the beast. No, that's the mark of the beast. No, this is the mark of the beast. And we go crazy. This should be, that should be. You know what we start doing? We start getting so sidetracked that we forget to love God and love people. The reason why I hesitate even talking about this isn't because it's the word of God. I'll do that because God, I believe, commissions all pastors to use every word of God. But, I, but, but I'll tell you, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that there's a fear that someone's going to go down some crazy wormhole. And just what I mean by that is they're going to go into some, some idea of like, oh no, I got to go buy a large container and set, move myself to northern Montana, dig a big hole and put it in the ground. Don't act like that's crazy. Because people do that. They get weird. Oh my goodness, if it's a pre-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and we get hung up on stuff. We get so sidetracked that we lose sight of loving God and loving people. If this study in Revelation does not compel you to love God and share him, then, 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 then leave. Don't be part of it. It's got to convict and convince us to love him and love people. Now let's talk about Revelation. Amen. Jesus, will you help us today? We got a few minutes. God, we're going to get into your word. So help us to see and hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned to you that the next week, I'm going to spend some time breaking down a little bit more details as to what an end time timeline looks like. I'm going to give you the perspective of the Foursquare Church believes and how I stand on it and what I believe. And, and again, run the risk of you throwing rocks at me or whatever you're going to do or embracing me. But I am telling you this. Some people in here don't have an opinion. There are people in here, who, too, I promise you, who will be here next week who have no idea. Who Hollywood is the only one who's showing them that there's some sort of an end-time thing a-coming. That this thing called Armageddon, <laughs> this thing called the tribulation, this thing called a rapture is only what they've seen in a movie or read in a book other than the Bible. So here's my hope. My hope is this next week is to give you some frame of reference. I hope I elicit some emotion because I hope I drive you back to your Bible. Amen? There we go. Today, over half of all Christians believe that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. The book of Revelation contains the last words of Jesus on earth about the future. He warns of terrible events that will fall on the face of the earth during this tribulation time. The Antichrist, Satan, the mark of the beast, what will happen to all of those who refuse salvation? What will happen to those people in false religions? What will happen at the battle of Armageddon, the second coming, or the rapture of the church? Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation about this millennial kingdom, a great white throne judgment of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, there's one primary message that floats throughout the whole, the whole book of Revelation. It's simply this, I love you and we win. At the end of the book of Revelation, God wants you to know that, that you can be on the right side of the scale. You can be on the winning team. That's what I think the whole message is all about. Revelation is not about a secret predictive code that God's waiting for you to decipher so that you can figure out when the end of the world will be. It's not about some sort of a, I figured it out now. Quite frankly, the Bible actually says of itself, no man knows the day or the hour of his coming. No man knows that. In fact, I think it's so funny. I think if, I think if, uh, if someone actually did figure it out, I think God would just change it. 
So here's my thoughts. Stop trying so he'll come. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's like the idea, right? The, it, it, because no man knows the day or the hour. And that all comes from this idea of the Jewish, the, the Jewish understanding of, of marriage. I don't know if you know that. But the Bible says, remember Jesus said in the book of Matthew, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember that in heaven? And when he said that, he was literally talking as a groom goes to prepare a place called the Chetuba in Greek, or in, in Greek language. Literally, his idea was to go to prepare a place for his bride, the bride of Christ, the church, us, in heaven for us to be with him, right? He's going to prepare a place for us. You know, when a, a Jewish guy, when they would finally pay the dowry, they would get engaged, then the two dads would get together and say, hey, son, Go build the chetuba or the house or the apartment for your wife and wife, daughter, bride. Go get yourself prepared for your future as a wife, mommy, woman in the community, whatever you're going to do. Like, go do that. So, so as Jesus is preparing a place for us, our job here on earth is to prepare ourselves as the bride, right? Just to adorn our eyelashes? <laughs> no. Our job is to prepare ourselves, to make ourselves mature, to, to share Christ with people so that lost people know him. Our job is to like be the alive body of Christ, living, breathing, and growing here on planet Earth so that when Jesus returns, he's like, that's my bride. What we don't want to hear him say is, where'd they go? Made that up. What we don't want to see is like, what'd you do while I was gone? I've been preparing this great place for you in heaven over 2,000 years. What have you been doing all this time? Worrying about your feelings? You've been hung up on how you look? See, that's the fear I have, is that there's going to be this moment, that, uh, the, the judgment seat of Christ moment, when he takes all of our works, and the Bible says he takes all of who you are, and he literally sets a flame to it. And as it begins, the, 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 the wood, the hay, the, the chaff burns up, and all that's left is what's valuable. And I fear all the things that are going to burn up are my feelings, my, 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 my whatever, all the craziness, right? And literally he's saying, What's going to remain is the love and the commitment and the ability to love your neighbor when they didn't love you, your ability to love and care for and share your faith when they didn't want to know. That kind of stuff's going to remain. He's going to say that. That's good. Hmm. Last week we talked about the seven churches in Asia Minor that this letter was written to. The book of Revelation really breaks up in three parts. Chapter one is more of a, of a, of a past, of what the, the, the past was. Chapter two and three are the present, the church age. And then chapter four and following is really about the future, the things that are to come. Last week we talked about the past and the present, the chapter two and three of the churches of Asia Minor, that, that John on the island of Patmos gets this a message from God to be able to write down over the churches. Now, the churches in Asia Minor, you see up on the screen, these are the churches that he wrote to. Those are indicative of you and I today as Christians. Back then, in those days, they had a, an overarching thematically what was going on in those churches. Today, I think any one of these things can be happening, if not all of them, in each of our lives. To some, he was saying, stop doing that. And to some, he was saying, good job, keep doing that. So, for example, in the church of Ephesus, he said, return to me. Return to me, your first love that you once had when we first knew each other. The, book of, or the church of Smyrna, he says, remain faithful in the midst of persecution and trial. To the, to the church of Pergamum, he's saying, listen, stop allowing your outward appearance to be that which gives you value. Literally turn away from compromise. 
The church of Thyatira, it's the blue-collar church. He literally says, stop letting your culture determine your theology. To the church of Sardis, he says, go back to what you once knew, what you once believed, and hang on to it as truth. To the church of Philadelphia, not the ones that won the Super Bowl, to the church of Philadelphia, he says, hold tight to what you know to be true. To the church of Laodicea, he literally says, stop being so lukewarm. It's interesting, in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 2, when he talks about this church of Laodicea, he says, he says, either be hot or cold, or I'll, your Bible in English says, spit you out of my mouth. The actual Greek means this, I'll throw you up. Like, I'll regurgitate you. Literally, it's like if it's this lukewarm, he's like, be hot or cold. Have an opinion, go for it, but, but, but get after it. Literally, listen, he, Jesus is, is desiring us to not just sit on our, sit on our salvation. I'm saved, glad I am, going to heaven. Stinks to be you, lost and dying world on their way to hell for all eternity. See, we would never say it that way, but we so often carry ourselves that way. Hmm. The basic outline of the book of Revelation, like I said, past, present, and future. We don't have a lot of time to go through this stuff. So, so next week, as I lay out this end time timeline, it's going to merit that you have some understandings of some of the things that you're going to see. So, so I want to take just a minute and, and, and begin to embark on a journey of defining a few things so that next week when we come together and I, I lay out this end time timeline that you have an idea and I don't just lob stuff out. So if I say the phrase, the church age, I want you to understand what that is because you're living in it. We're in the midst of the church age. The church age is really Acts chapter 2 all the way to you. Made that up. Literally, Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit filled the church, and they were filled with this empowering Spirit of God to go out and to make disciples and to go and and, and be bold to the world. Acts chapter 2, all the way to us. This is what's called the church age. This is what we are right now. We're the bride of Christ, and his intention was for us to learn to know him, to grow with him. I love this. Jesus says, I'll build my church in Matthew chapter 16. And we've been doing it for a couple of thousand years. I love this. He's preparing a place for us. This church age is, a, is what you and I are living in. The seven churches that were spoken to in Asia Minor is us. Some of us are so consumed with how we appear to each other and have no desire to care how we appear to him. And literally he's saying, this church age, this is when we begin to figure some of that stuff out. Some of us have these habitual sin patterns that we continue to hang on to. And we declare with our mouths, God's grace is good. Thank you, God, that I get to live in grace, knowing that you'll cover my sin as I continue to live in it. I'm just here to tell you, in this church age, God's saying, run from that. Begin to run from that sin. It's destructive. It's going to kill you. It's, it's destroying people who are watching you. So many of us live in this, in this church of Thyatira, this idea of, of somehow allowing our culture to determine what we know to be holy and pure. Our culture says that that's acceptable. Our culture says that's okay with us. Our culture says this is what holiness and righteousness, this is the, the height and the length of it. Therefore, that's all it should be. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not so sure our culture has a pretty good beat on morality. I'm not convinced that our culture has an idea of what it means to be faithful and true. You see, I think we should be the ones defining holiness and righteousness to a culture that has no idea what it is. 
We need to model modesty. We need to model right speaking. We need to model a good understanding of the Holy Spirit because the world that's lost and dying has no idea. See, this church age was for us to make ourselves holy and pure, washed with the water of the word of God that it speaks of. That's what it's doing right now. By the way, did you know this? Did you know, some of you may or may not know this, but back when uh, in the 80s, I've done a lot of weddings, but in the 80s, I would go to a young bride that I would sing at their wedding or I would perform their wedding or whatever. And, and, and there was always this under, it was kind of spoken under the breath of the idea of a white wedding dress. The white wedding dress. What's the white wedding dress? And there was always this, I don't know if she should be wearing a white wedding dress if you know what I mean. There, there'd be that conversation because somehow there was this idea that only someone who was a, a, a pure virgin or something could be capable or should be wearing a white Anybody else should wear anything but a white wedding dress. How many of you remember that? Come on. I'm not the only one, right? So the idea, right? Can I tell you this, that the white wedding dress, what it was really for? It had nothing to do with what the woman brought to her wedding day. You know what the white wedding dress was for? The white wedding dress wasn't a job description for her. It was a job description for him. His job was to do his entire life to, to live, to, to make her pure and white as, as her dress. Her jo- his job was to lay his life down for his bride, to serve her, to give her, to take care of her. And all the owies and woundings and pain that she brought into this marriage, your job was to spend your whole life making her like that beautiful dress. See, we don't preach that. We just make women feel guilty wearing white wedding dresses. It's kind of pathetic, right? But, but you see what I'm saying? That's our job as the church. Our job now as the bride of Christ is to live a way that says, God, I'm going to do everything I can to live righteous and pure. Because what did Jesus do by dying on the cross? He already made us pure and white as driven snow. We need now to live in the purity that he gave us. Amen. See, that's what this church age is about. This church age is about. Okay, number two. Uh, so we can talk about this. I got eight minutes to talk to you about the rapture. Ready? Definition. The rapture. What is the rapture? Some of you are wondering, what on earth are you talking about? Let me just let you, let you know this. Um, there's going to be a rapture. I promise you. Some of you are wondering what the rapture is. The rapture is this moment we're going to talk about, but I'll just tell you this, those of you that know the rapture. There's going to be a rapture, whether it happens pre, <laughs> mid, or post-tribulation. There's going to be a rapture. There's going to be a tribulation. Let me tell you this. Tribulation is going to blow. It's going to be hard. The tribulation is bad. Holy cow. You've never seen nothing until you've heard the message of the tribulation. It is a crazy mess. I'm telling you this. There is a tribulation. There is a rapture. There is a second coming. There, there is a, a millennial kingdom. There are all these things that are going on. I'm just fearful that we don't know what those are. They're really real. You don't even have to believe me. It's going to happen. There's going to be a rapture, I promise. And I'll tell you when I think it's going to happen next week. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, so come back. Okay, now I've got seven minutes to talk about it. Here we go, the rapture. The rapture, the word rapture is not in your Bible. But neither is Trinity, Christmas, or Easter. Let's read the King James Bible. Easter's in there one time. The rapture is a term from the Latin meaning to carry off, to transport, to snatch away. It's the concept of carrying off or up to something clearly taught in the Scripture. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Then I looked, and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And a voice said, the voice, uh, Then I heard a voice before me speak to me with a sound of a mighty trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, I will show you what must happen after these things. 
like I said, whether you believe it's a pre-millennial or a pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation rapture, there's going to be a rapture. Context is key. The rapture, there's other places in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians that talk about the rapture. I love the 1 Thessalonians passage because, remember, listen, if you don't read your Bible in context, then you're going to be prone to starting your own crazy cult. So read in context. Thessalonians. Thessalonians talks about a rapture of the church. I'm going, to, I'm going to leave Revelation for a minute and tell you a little bit about 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was a church that Paul, I believe, had planted. Thessalonians was a group of very young believers in Christ. Thessalonians were these people who were trying to figure out this walk with God. They were kind of around early on in this whole uh, church, early first church narrative idea. The Thessalonians were people who remembered stories of Jesus saying, Lo, I come quickly. They remembered hearing people tell of Jesus who said, I'm going to return any minute. The problem with the Thessalonian church was is that some of them were aging out, getting a little old, and dying. Jesus said, the coming day of the Lord is nigh. It's coming. I'm going to happen. The Thessalonians started to get a little freaked out because they were like, hey, uh, my mom who'd been waiting for Jesus, she just died. What about her? Will she see the coming of the Lord or not? They were getting a little freaked out because they were, well, normal. They were like you and me. You'd be thinking the same thing. So when you die, do you go to heaven? Do you sit in the ground? What do you do? They were a little nervous. They were trying to figure out what's going on. So I love Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul comes in and goes, let me help you with that. And he writes five chapters to the Thessalonians in letter. That's what we get First Thessalonians. I love this. As he writes this, Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter 4, specifically dealing with people who have died. Deal? Here's what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have already died. Period. He's being pretty clear here, right? There's no kind of about this. There's no, I'm wondering who he's talking about. I wonder if he means people or not. He's literally talking about people who have died. Right? You ever wondered this? If you ever wonder who, where, where people go when they die, first of all, can I just look at me for a quick second and tell you this? Let me help you out. You are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Right? I'll help you with this. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a dirt body, right? Here's what your soul is. Your soul is everything from the neck up. Your soul is this thinking part of you. You, my friend, are a spirit that has a soul, a thinker, that lives in a dirt body. Your dirt body can't inhabit heaven because it's a, well, sinful mess. You need a new one. That's what happens at this rapture. For the record, your spirit that has a soul, look at all these blank looks on your faces, that lives in a dirt body. Amen. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Listen to this. Paul writes, I want you to know what's going to happen to Christians who have died, so that you will be, so that you will not, so that you will not be full of sorrow like the people who have no hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised again to life, we also believe that when Jesus comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians who have died. Verse 15. I'll tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with a call of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. First, everyone say first. 
all the Christians who have died will raise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. So comfort and encourage one another with these words. How many have never heard that before? Right, so maybe you have. I'll tell you this right now. But the whole idea, right? You need a new body, right? Because the one you got, the Bible says in Matthew, is, is groaning. If, if you're over the age of 30, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it's, it's in pain. You get a new one, thank God, right? When this stuff happens. Uh, by the way, um, some of you have ever heard in the story where, where uh, in the Bible where it says that people have fallen asleep. You ever heard that before? So-and-so fell asleep. Stephen uh, was having rocks thrown at him, and then it says he fell asleep, right? The, the word asleep there is where we get the word cemetery from. It's the Greek word I can't pronounce, but literally it means to die. But it's a temporary death. The word cemetery itself means to sleep. It means that there are people who are Christians who have died and are in heaven and be, will be reunited one day at this rapture with a new body. Yay. That's the good news. This rapture thing that's going to happen. The real question for many of you is, when's it going to happen? Before this tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? That we'll try to talk about next week. Know this. What if there was a pre-tribulation rapture? What if Jesus could actually come back today? What if, what if, he, came, what if he comes back at 1230 today? What if he did? What if he came back and he, he met us in the air and you saw graves go up and you thought, holy cow, what's going on? Next thing you know, you're in hell. You're there. I can't believe this, right? You know, I think he's going to show up in Washington first because there's clouds. <laughs> Sorry. He's not showing up in LA, I'll tell you that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but, but listen. <laughs> this is for real, guys. There's real heaven. There's real hell. You can be happy or mad at me. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But I can tell you there's a real heaven and a real hell at stake. My prayer for you today as we close is that you would find Jesus today. You may not be here next week. Who knows what's going to happen? Jesus may come back at 1230 today. Oh, I hope he does. And there's this part of me that's sad. And I'm like, God, I got a letter this morning from a friend of mine. Actually, it was the other day, but I read it this morning about pastors in India who, who have been, was it in India, Mike? It was pastors in India who in January were, were, were hanged and, and, and killed and beaten in front of their families, in front of their churches. And there's a part of me that's like, oh God, rain down your judgment on those. And I, then I thought, caught myself. And I was like, wait, those people don't know you. And so I want to say, God, come quickly. Come at 1230 today. But everything in the pasture of me wants to say, can you wait till one? Can you wait till tomorrow at 1230? Because today someone might find Christ. I tell you what, God, can you give us one more month? Give us one more year. Because if we have one more year, we'll have more of an opportunity. Folks, if this study in Revelation doesn't compel you to get out and share your faith, I don't know what will. That's what this is all about. Now let's pray. Jesus, you know where we are. Every one of us in this room, anyone who's watching us online or listening to us, you know where we are, God. I pray for these men and women, these boys and girls, these people who are even outside this country that are listening to us. I pray that this person would surrender their lives to you. 
Today that there would be a moment of more than just an acknowledgement that, wow, that's cute, preacher man, bring it up. But there would be a sense of conviction that only comes by your Holy Spirit. Have your way, Jesus. If you're here today, you're listening to us and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And today, you know, if you were to stand before God, you don't know why you should say, let me into your heaven. If you don't know the answer to that, then this morning say, Jesus, I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. Take away my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need to be saved today. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but you've kind of drifted off. And today, you know you want to rededicate your life to following him. You don't need to get re-saved. You just need to get realigned. If that's you, say, Jesus, that's me. I, I got, this is for real, God. I need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation.